So let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We've spent the last three weeks looking at biblical stories of lives unraveled. We met Job, who lost everything. Riches, family, health, a total unraveling of life and meaning. We met Peter, who tried to step out in faith and walk on the water to meet Jesus, who was unraveled by uncertainty and doubt. We met Saul on the Damascus Road, whose life and vocation were unraveled by a blinding, faith, blinding light and a conversion of faith. In each of these cases, there was a dramatic event, a fear-laden moment, a complete upending that led to a new way of living and being and believing. But this morning we meet Zacchaeus up in a sycamore tree, and for all intents and purposes, Jesus stops along the road and invites himself to stay at, at Zacchaeus' house. It appears, at first glance, that Jesus is a rather presumptive house guest, but this particular encounter hardly seems to rise to the level of unraveling with the likes of Job, Peter, and Saul. I don't remember the first time that I heard the story of Zacchaeus, but I'm quite sure that I wasn't more than five years old. Whether it was vacation Bible school or Sunday school, what I learned was the children's tune. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. As a kid, I thought this was a pretty great story. I didn't see any reason why Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house was a big deal or a community problem or cause for any particular fuss. Instead, as a kid who was vertically challenged myself, I quite liked that Jesus took particular notice of the short ones. My Sunday school teachers summarized this story nicely as a very sweet account about how Jesus takes notice of us, no matter how big or small, and wants to be an intimate part of our lives. And all of that happens to be true. It's just that the kids' version misses the scandalous nature of this story. The more I got to know Zacchaeus, the more I realized what a big deal it is that Jesus not only sees Zacchaeus, but speaks to him and invites himself over to his house. You see, 
alongside being short in stature, Zacchaeus was a bit short on moral fortitude. He was a tax collector, which we know isn't good because all throughout Luke's gospel, the phrase tax collector is almost always accompanied by the word sinner, as in this man Jesus welcomes sinners and tax collectors and eats with them. The horror. And Zacchaeus wasn't just any old tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. In those days, that meant that his accumulated wealth came not from earning a living wage for a tough job, but by skimming off the top, overcharging his neighbors, and other unseemly practices as a Jewish man working on behalf of the Roman Empire. He was rich, but he hadn't come by his wealth honestly. And yet here Jesus is, stopping amidst a crowd to take particular note of him and invite himself over unannounced. So you can imagine why the crowd looked on in shock, wondering what makes him so special. From the beginning of Luke's gospel and throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus sides with those on the margin, those considered down and out, those not accounted as much in the eyes of the world. When we think about the marginalized, we think about those whose power and voice is limited because of race or gender or age or ability. Throughout the gospel, Jesus takes particular care of the least of these. He offers living water to a Samaritan woman, an outsider by gender and nationality. He welcomes little children. He heals the blind and the lame. He spends much of his time on the outskirts where the poor were relegated. When Jesus began his ministry, he stood in the temple and unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and declared that he was here to bring good news to the poor. So when it comes to a swindling rich man like Zacchaeus, our minds don't typically go to the marginalized. We're prone to think, he's got money, what more does he need? How is this good news for the poor? Why does he get any special treatment from Jesus? And yet, while Zacchaeus is rich, he is nevertheless poor, despised by his neighbors, counted as nothing, even as worse than nothing. As a tax collector, and especially a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus is not just a man without any friends. He is seen as beyond redemption. But Jesus has a way of overturning our assumptions and is always full of surprises. As Frederick Beekner so poetically retells the story, this sawed-off shyster is perched in the sycamore tree, 
and Jesus opens his mouth to speak, and all of Jericho hugs itself in anticipation of hearing Jesus finally give that man holy hell. Woe unto you, repent, wise up, is the least of what they expect him to say. What Jesus says is, come down on the double, I'm staying at your house. It's not reported how Zacchaeus got out of the sycamore, but chances are good he fell out in pure astonishment. This invitation to Zacchaeus' house is definitely not what was supposed to have happened. And the crowd's displeasure is evident. They, like many of us, are looking for a logical calculation between righteous living and Jesus' attentiveness. They're looking for a God who rewards those who live by the rules with notice and favor. No one wants to see a rich man rewarded with further perceived special treatment, especially when everyone knows he didn't come by his earning honestly. Zacchaeus may be a son of Abraham, but they have long since discounted him as unworthy of God's love and redemption. And whether we like to admit it or not, we all know these people today. Those who seem to be fed with a silver spoon, whose lives are so entitled or whose actions are so despicable that we've written off their ability to do anything right even if they tried right in front of us. But it's not just Jesus' at invitation that shocks everyone. In response to all of this grumbling from the crowd, it is Zacchaeus and not Jesus who speaks. Standing amidst a crowd of neighbors, neighbors whom he had defrauded, Zacchaeus declares, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. He doesn't make this promise to Zacchaeus at his house behind closed doors. He makes this promise publicly before the whole community to whom he is accountable and who stands to benefit. Zacchaeus, not to be embarrassed in front of Jesus, strives to offer up the right answer, to take a step in the right direction, to do the next right thing. He doesn't confess exactly. He doesn't repent directly, but he acts. We don't know whether Zacchaeus is caught in the same trap as the crowd, hoping that he can earn his way into Jesus' good graces or curry some good favor, or whether this single invitation to his house results in a genuine conversion and transformation. All that we know is that he offers a response of restitution and reconciliation. And yet I can imagine that there were still some in the crowd who said, we'll see. But Jesus' response to Zacchaeus is even more startling than his self-invitation to eat at his house in the first place. 
Because in front of this whole crowd from whom Zacchaeus has profited, a crowd whom he has not yet repaid, Jesus blesses Zacchaeus, extends salvation to him, not because Zacchaeus promised to give to the poor or pay back what he is owed, but because he too is a son of Abraham. Rich or poor, just or unjust, Jesus came to reconcile the whole people of God to himself. And in that regard, the marginalized poor and the marginalized wealthy find a place of mutual identity as God's children. Zacchaeus received salvation for the same reason everyone else in the crowd does because he's a beloved child of God. But this isn't just a matter of Zacchaeus's soul being made right with God. And his salvation isn't an individualized experience. The impact of Christ's grace saves, in turn transforms the whole community. Preacher Fred Craddock puts it this way, here in the case of Zacchaeus, he writes, his being saved refers to a conversion, to be sure, but not in any private sense. Not only is his household involved, but also the poor who will be beneficiaries of his conversion, as well as the people whom he defrauded. His salvation has personal, domestic, social, and economic dimensions. We should not forget, Craddock writes, that in other stories, saved is translated as made well, healed, made whole. This is not simply about the condition of Zacchaeus's soul. His whole life is affected by Jesus' ministry, a foretaste of the complete reign of God. In the reign of God, in the kingdom of heaven unfolding on earth, our salvation is not dependent upon anything more than our mutual status as beloved children of God but our salvation also compels us to act, to respond, to live more justly, fairly, and peaceably with our brothers and sisters. John Calvin speaks of our justification and our sanctification, our salvation and our grateful response as two sides of the same coin of Christ's grace. Jesus' offering of salvation to Zacchaeus and his household is not because of his intention to give to the poor and repay the defrauded. But neither does Jesus excuse him from that work in response. When it comes down to the brass tacks of this story, the grace Jesus affords Zacchaeus is powerful, but it feels like cheap grace without the accompanying work of economic justice. 
it remains just a sweet children's story if it's about having Jesus over as a house guest. It becomes a story of unraveling and remaking when it costs him something. Perhaps we prefer the children's version because it's not easy to talk about money, particularly in a season when so many are living on so much less, when job loss and furloughs are a reality for too many, when unemployment lines are long and the cuts just seem to keep coming. It feels like a loaded question to think about how we might be called like Zacchaeus to respond with economic justice. Many of us are not in positions to have extra to give. Maybe we feel overtaxed and underserved. And to hear a story this morning about a wealthy man being saved, being given special notice by Jesus, we might find ourselves prone to grumble like the crowd. But to avoid the economic implications robs Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus of its power. Because Zacchaeus invites us, challenges us, to think differently about what it means to give to charity or to help those we see as poor. When a wealthy businessman walked into a school assembly in February at a Title I high school in Toledo, Ohio, students had plenty of reasons to be skeptical. They didn't want another pep talk, and they weren't looking to be anyone's charity case. But businessman Peter Cadence stood before a room of high schoolers and their parents, and announced that he would pay the tuition, room and board, books and fees for any graduating senior who wanted to go to college, as well as the tuition costs for any parent who wanted to go pursue a degree at college or trade school. It was an above and beyond multi-generational generous outpouring of resources for those who would have no other way to pay for school. Many immediately called it the greatest gift of their life. And it would cost Mr. Caden some $3 million. Standing amidst this crowd of students and parents, Mr. Cadence paused and said, I ask you only one favor in return. Of course, there was a catch, some surely thought. But Mr. Cadence continued, please do not ever use the word gift to describe what I did here today. Only use the word responsibility. When asked about it later, he said, what became of my life was as much a factor of the inequities that exist in our society today as it was my skills, my talent, or my work ethic. In other words, Pete says he didn't win at life fair and square. He says many successful people don't. The competitive set, the people I compete with, he says, is a lot smaller than it otherwise could be 
if everyone had the same level of education. No, Mr. Cadence hadn't actively defrauded his neighbors like Zacchaeus, but he recognized the ways that the systems he participates in and benefits from enabled him to profit tenfold and to leave his neighbors in a lurch. Was his good deed going to get him into heaven? Would it cause God to take particular notice of him? Not any more than it would anyone else. But Cadence seemed to understand what Zacchaeus recognized through his encounter with Jesus. Salvation is about the wholeness of the whole community. Not just in some heavenly cloud far away at the end of life, but here and now among us, rich and poor alike, in the ways that we choose to be God's beloved children together. Jesus' extension of grace, of salvation, calls Zacchaeus to a radical restructuring of his earthly wealth. Jesus' extension of grace and of salvation also requires a new kind of relationship of care across the community in such a way that Zacchaeus, once excluded, would now be a part. Zacchaeus may have the harder task of giving up his material wealth, but the grumbling crowds must also re receive Zacchaeus back into the family because he too is a son of Abraham. Each week when we say the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven here on earth for which we pray is a more beloved community where the whole community benefits when we see one another as Christ sees us, as brothers and sisters, as kin. With those eyes, we look up into the sycamore tree and around at one another, ready to reflect grace, both in the way that we treat each other and in the way that we allocate our resources, so that that kingdom of heaven looks more like a kingdom here on earth. And when we can do that, then we pray with joy. Christ's will be done. Amen.